0: Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, I am uh, excited to continue in our series this morning. We've been in a series called uh, Hunger and Thirst, and it's been about cultivating a desire for more of God, even in a dry and weary land. And so for the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians 12, and so this morning we've come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so whether you're a Christian or not, Um, you're probably familiar with this passage in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians because you've probably been to a wedding. And in our society, if you have been to a wedding, whether it's been a wedding for Christians or not, uh, honestly, you've probably heard this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 because 90% of them use this passage in 1 Corinthians 13 because it talks about love. And so this passage is, is... It makes sense that it's used in a wedding. However, the context for this passage is actually not covenant marriage, which is fascinating. Like, in so many ways, it does directly apply to covenant marriage, but the direct context for this passage is a different kind of covenantal relationship. But it's still rooted completely in love. And that covenantal relationship is the relationship within the church. You see, marriage is a covenant, it's a covenant relationship. It's designed to be a reflection of the way that God loves his people, right? Ephesians 5 talks at length about this. And the difference between a covenant and a, and a contract is that a, a contract is a selfish, self oriented, I am going to look out for me. Number one, if you screw up, then I'm out because i got to protect myself. But a covenant says, my life for your life. I'm not just looking out for me. I'm looking out for you, right? Me for you. My life for your life. And so this is the difference. This is the, the type of interaction that God has called us into with himself. It's the interaction that defines covenant marriage, right? It makes it clear that when a man and a woman are married, they become even spiritually one flesh. We see this in Ephesians 5. One body in Christ, and it's a demonstration of the relationship between Christ and his church. And so the, the, the image is a spiritual one of covenantal union in Christ. And so here in 1 Corinthians 12, he's been talking about the unity in diversity of his church body. You see it? And he's talking about the different ways that his spirit, the Holy Spirit, manifests through each individual part of this body. We've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. And so here, he's in the same vein, in that same theme, he continues here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. We just heard it read, and we're gonna let's, let's read back through it to, to verse 31. Here it goes. 1 Corinthians 12. He's kind of summarizing all that he's just been talking about. And he dives in and says this, Now you... Talking to the Corinthian church, which also means he's talking to us too, risen church. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? There's an implication here. The answer to that is no. They don't all do that. In verse 31... But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And so his point here is about unity in diversity. That's the theme of the entire chapter. Okay? And so God didn't design his church to all be apostles. Or all prophets or all teachers. Or for everybody to speak with tongues. Some do. Others don't. And this is key. Not only is that okay, it's intentional. God has given different appointments and and gifts for different people. And so each one is extremely important. That's been the point of the whole chapter here. And so we're to be careful not to dismiss certain gifts or certain people because they make you uncomfortable. One is not inferior or superior to the other. This is the point of this whole passage. So we have to be careful not to exalt our preferences or particular gifting over or against others. And so in the same way, we have to be careful not to exalt someone else's gift over our own because this leads to division. This leads to superiority complexes or inferiority complexes, right? Or codependency issues or or a sense of which I'll never arrive. And it just makes everybody go self-centered and self-oriented instead of the point which is to look to God and love one another, which is the whole thing. So we've we got to be careful to not dismiss either the gifts or people who are gifted differently than us simply because they make you uncomfortable. This is a thing. This is what church does. It's easy to hear this stuff and, and then just be like, Ah, that makes me feel weird. I'm going to isolate. Right? But that's, he's calling us to literally lean against that. And God's church history is littered with the wreckage of divided churches all in the name of comfort and preference. But God has designed the church to operate like a unified body with many parts. And so we grow and mature together through unity in diversity with Jesus as the head of the body, which is his church. And so this is what we've been talking about. It's the theme of chapter 12. And so while the teacher in me, though would love to dissect this over the next few weeks and dive into every single gift that's been listed, I want you to understand that's actually not the point of this passage. There's nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, I kind of want, like I said, the teacher in me wants to do that. But I also want you to realize that there are a ton of spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament. That aren't even mentioned here. There's a ton of mystery surrounding these gifts also. But the main point here, like the point of the rainbow isn't to dissect its colors, but to take in the majesty of the one who created it. Okay, And so like the rainbow, there's a lot of overlap in all of these things. And so I do want to real quickly read through the different lists of gifts in the New Testament just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. And I also I don't want you to think like, okay, well, I, I shouldn't dive into dissecting these things. Because in fact, there's a great book called uh, Spiritual Gifts, I think it's called Spiritual Gifts for Beginners by Dr. Sam Storms. I encourage you to grab it. It's fantastic. He does a much better job than I could at dissecting some of these things. And we are going to dive into some of these more as we go forward, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees here, okay? So, I'm gonna, But I am going to read through quickly the list of the gifts or the, the, the gifts of the Spirit that are listed throughout the New Testament. So just listen to these different gifts here. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, gives a list, and it goes like this Word of wisdom. Word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28 through 30, it talks about apostles, prophets, teachers, this is what we just read, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Romans 12, verse 6 through 8, it lists prophecy, again, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and mercy. Ephesians 4, 11, it lists apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teacher, which I would say is in the same grouping. Many many would agree with that. Could be different I, eh, if you're a pastor or a teacher. So um, 1 Peter four ten even gets into speaking gifts and serving gifts. And so that's what we see is about 20 different gifts that have been identified in the New Testament, but that doesn't mean that there aren't a whole lot more. It's not an exhaustive list. That's not the point. And so again, I'd love to tackle each one of these individually, and we will, going forward, tackle some of the ones that may be even more confusing to you. But, again, the point is that we should earnestly desire the gifts, but listen to this, not at the expense of loving God and one another well. That's the whole reason he's bringing this stuff up. That's what he's talking about here. See, the Corinthians were a highly supernaturally oriented church. You might say they were a hyper-charismatic church. Meaning they valued the extravagant gifts over the others, and they did it in a toxic way. Remember, the gifts of the Spirit are ways in which the Holy Spirit manifests in and through people for the common good, for the upbuilding of the church. And so the church's mission upon the earth, then, we know, is the Great Commission. Okay? And so the gifts aren't designed to make people in the church look awesome. It's not the point. Nor are they about their own our own entertainment like they're not here to entertain us they're not here for our own comfort or or for our own control over circumstances or even controlling God to get him to do what we want him to do this is how it all kind of devolves into self-centeredness right this is about God's glory and the great commission to make disciples who make disciples that's what the gifts are designed for and to give us and so the Corinthians had missed this Now, because they missed it, it would be easy for the Apostle Paul to say, look, guys, you're just too immature to handle all this stuff, right? Like, it'd be easy for him to say, like, let's just kind of set this stuff all aside because you're making me nervous. But that's not what he says. That's not what he does. He doesn't allow their misuse to lead to disuse. In fact, he makes it clear, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. He doesn't let him throw the baby out with the bathwater. He says, earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. And I will show you a still more excellent way. But what could be more excellent than operating on a supernatural level? Like, what could be more excellent than that, right? I'll tell you operating on a supernatural level, in love. That's what's more excellent. That's what he's talking about. Because the more excellent way that Paul shows them is the way of love. That more excellent way he's calling them to is to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts lovingly. Right? And so after all, Jesus makes it clear that it's the way of love that actually sets the true church apart from the world, not merely the supernatural that's important. I hear this all the time where people are just like, man, we got to do all these supernatural things and then they'll believe. No, they won't. Because you're not the only people out there doing supernatural stuff. We got to come to grips with that reality. Open our eyes to the spiritual realities of this world. It's out there. It's real. The thing that sets us apart is the love of God. A love for God and God's love coursing through us. That's what's different. So wait, you're telling me that people can do mighty works for God and not even really know God? Yeah. Guys, listen to me. You can do things for God, even mighty supernatural works for God, And not even know him. Much less love him. It happens all the time. Just because somebody does mighty things for the Lord does not mean that there's some kind of super Christian to be exalted. This is not what it's about. The truth is is God God can and has done mighty, mighty works in and through people who aren't even necessarily saved. Matthew 7 Verse 22 through 23. You don't believe me? Listen to Jesus. This is Jesus talking. On that day, meaning the day of judgment, many will say to me, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness. So he didn't say you didn't actually prophesy. He didn't say you didn't actually cast out demons and actually do mighty works. This isn't about what they did or didn't do. It's about relationship. It doesn't mean that the song they wrote or the message they preached or the healing or the miracle or, or that God did through them isn't legitimate anymore. If anything, it means that it was God the whole time and not man. Imagine that. It's almost as if we can't boast or anything. Right? And so it's important to remember that this isn't just about tapping into the power of God. This is about tapping into the heart of God. And when we do that in Christ, that's actually where the real power is in the first place. The lasting stuff, the good stuff, right? So here in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a chapter that actually emphasizes both. So chapters 12 through 14 are all about the gifts of the Spirit, and right in the middle of it all, we get an entire chapter about the preeminence of love. And so here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. You ready? You with me? Chacking? A little cold outside, a little fall, autumn day. Lean in. This is what I want you to get. God isn't only concerned with what we do, but the way we do it. Love matters. Okay? God isn't only concerned with what we do. He is concerned with what we do. But He's not only concerned with what we do, but the way we do it. Because love matters, which is the title of the sermon this morning. Love matters. So the question is do you love God? right? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you love what God loves? Or do you just want God to accomplish the things you love? This is something we, we've got to continually grapple with because this is what our hearts tend to drag us towards and away from him and to our own things. It's like a car that's constantly getting out of alignment, right? So this is what we do when we come here and we go, okay, God, what, is, what do you love? align my heart with you. This is what repentance is all about, right? You know, there's a great temptation in this sermon to think only about how these issues are going to apply you, to your spouse or like to those that you're kind of like, ah, oh, they struggle with this really a lot, you know, right? But this isn't about your neighbor. This is about your own heart. So I want to encourage you that as we go through this stuff, I, this is probably going to be one of those things that's highly convicting. I hope it is. That's a sign that the Spirit of God is in you and loves you. he's drawing you to himself in love. And so I want you to think about this, like, to connect the dots in your own life. So before you start calling out that speck in your brother's eye, first remove the plank out of your own eye, right? And so if that happens, I think this is going to be really helpful for us all. So, again, the question is, do you hunger and thirst for more of God and more of his kingdom? Or do you simply desire him to make things better for you? more prosperous or more comfortable for you if you do that then that can again take us off track we're going to fix our eyes on him and his delight because God loves you and I think it's clear that he, he he does want these very good things for us but not at the expense of building and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness amen and so Remember, Satan is happy to keep you comfortable if it means keeping you sidelined from his great commission. Let me say that one again, because I don't think that registered. Sa- Satan is happy to keep you comfortable if it means keeping you sidelined from his great commission. You got it? But when we love what God loves, we'll also begin to love like He loves. And that's what it looks like to tap into the power that goes way beyond ourselves, which is why love matters so much. Loving him, receiving his love, and then letting it course through us to one another. That's how the gifts operate. The Great Commission is accomplished, and his spirit manifests in and through his people. Amen? That's why we get this chapter that is in between. Chapter 12 talks about the gifts. Chapter 14 talks about the gifts. Chapter 13, love. Okay? It's intentional. Look at chapter 13. So the rest of our time, we're going to wade through the truth of God's love that's revealed in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 7. We're just going to do the first seven verses of chapter 13. Okay? And then we'll, we'll pick it up next week. But this is what verse 1 says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Think about that. Get the imagery? It's obnoxious, right? It's repulsive even. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And so what love is he talking about here? It's the love of God. It's the love of God which overflows in a love for others. Remember, this is the commandment. Love God, love each other. That's Again, this is the thing that sets the church apart from the world is the way we love. And so the way we love is the way we're loved by God in Christ. But if we're honest, if I'm honest even, right, like I think that we'd agree that we don't always think love is the most effective means for getting things done. I mean, seriously, take the church hat, church hat off for a little bit. When you're in your job, when you're trying to get things accomplished, right, are you like, man, we got so much to get done, I got to love people well, This normally seems a hindrance in society. Because like, it's easy to separate things like love from pragmatism. Love easily becomes a sort of add on. Maybe that just is like, okay, well, this makes me really awesome if I love people and get things accomplished. But what matters to getting things accomplished? Like, and, then, and, and often, though, it just becomes an unnecessary hindrance to a task oriented society. But the ultimate mission of the universe is not task-oriented. It's relationally oriented. This is huge. Our ultimate mission isn't about bigger and better and more efficient. It's about more disciples in love with God and each other and redeemed as his people. That's the mission of the universe. It's not just the church. The church infiltrates everything. This is our commission. That's how Jesus said we would accomplish our mission in the first place. People are the mission, and they always have been. And so this is, a, this is not a new concept. In fact, I mentioned before that we're going to be syncing a bit up with uh, the kids that are what they're learning and risen kids downstairs. And so this morning they're reading about an Old Testament king named Rehoboam in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 12. And so you can talk to your kids about this. This is what they're learning. They're learning about a king who rejected love and wisdom for power and ego and preference. And the result was division within Israel. His father was the great and wise King Solomon. And after King Solomon's death, division became a real threat in Israel. But the assembly of Israel comes together in unity to crown Rehoboam as king. But many of them said, you know, hey, look, we have a heavy yoke under your father. But if you will lighten it, we will serve you. Opportunity for unity, right? And so Rehoboam then consults his elders and they tell him, yeah, we think it's wise to lighten the yoke on them. But Rehoboam also then consults his young friends that are going to tell him what he wants to hear. And they stroke his ego. And they tell him to basically act with an even heavier hand than his father did. Listen to this. Here's what Rehoboam then responds to the assembly of Israel. You ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this. 1 First Kings, First Kings 12, verse 10. It says this My little finger, he says, well, it says, And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you say to him, This is what he says. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. That's what we're going to, we're going to read that version to your kids. But most scholars agree that the Hebrew uh, is not as modest. He's not talking about his little finger. That's all I'm going to say. He's scornful. That's what's happening. He's scoffing. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so afraid Israel might split, King Rehoboam chooses his friend's advice, and again, likely his own preference, over that of the wise elders, which leads to the very split that he wanted to avoid. So his way was self-serving, and it was a disregard for the people that he was called by God to lead. He may have been the rightful king of Israel and even had the power and the authority to lead that way. That's not the way God desired because it was completely void of God's love. Because God isn't only concerned with what we do, but the way we do it. Love matters. And the mission we've all been given as his grace-bought, spirit-filled people is a mission of redemptive love which begins and ends with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like it all begins there. If you have not received the love of, I mean, really, received the love of God in Christ, all of this is all just going to be in vain. It'll be a vain, task oriented striving to obey rules that you hate. Guys, that's not Christianity, that's dry, burdened religion this is all fundamentally predicated on having received God's love for you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel, that God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life that starts now. Through the resurrection, he paves the way to an eternal life with God Almighty. And it's an eternal life that starts now through the indwelling of his spirit. It changes us from the inside out. And it doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean then that we're perfectly loved. And now our life is a response of worship that leans into that perfect love, and it perfects us. It's called sanctification. It matures us and grows us closer to him. So it's not just about being right. Now it's about being righteously aligned with the heart of God. This is huge. And hear me, God's heart isn't just angry with this fallen world. His heart is broken for it. This is why we have the cross. Our mission as the church is not to scoff, mock, and belittle Our mission is to make disciples who make disciples of a world that's far from God. So we speak truth. We do speak truth. Amen? But we do it in love, according to Ephesians 4.15. We speak truth in love, which means that we're not just dropping mean-spirited truth bombs on people and then justifying our snark and scorn because what we've said is true, especially to other Christians. We don't just do it and then we're like, well, it was true, that's true. It's like, yeah, it's true, but like, the way that you're missing it, missing the point here. Like what you said may be in fact true, but speaking the truth in love means that we actually care about the outcome. You see that? That's important. This definitely applies to the way Christians interact with each other. Huge for the family of God. Amen? Amen? Amen. (laughs) Amen. But it also applies to the way we interact with the lost world. Like often people will speak truth even preach the gospel with hostility because they reject or they expect to be rejected. Right? Sometimes you, you're like you're, you're talking to somebody and you begin to share the gospel and you're like, oh, I know this is, I'm really afraid of what you're going to say and I'm really scared that you're going to call me out or you're going to reject me as a friend or you're going to mock me or scoff me or to make fun of me. And so you say it, then you're like, I'm going to just, no, I'm going to say it. And so it's like, God loves you. Take that. Like, God died for you, and yeah, Jesus is the savior of the world, and you're an idiot. And then you're like, guys, that is, that happens often. And this is, yes, this is hyperbolic, and I'm exaggerating here, right? But this is often also what can happen, and it gets these, it becomes this, like, mean-spirited thing, and, and, and then, because we're expecting rejection, it's like an insecure coping mechanism to protect ourselves from vulnerability, and then we justify it by saying, well, at least I was obedient. And it's like, yeah, praise God for that, but here's the thing, without love, you're not fully obedient. Because God hasn't just called us to speak truth, he's called us to speak the truth in love, and without love, you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're abrasive and repellent to anyone around you. That is dangerous. So when you engage with those that are far from God or present the gospel or correct a brother or sister or vulnerably step out in faith, the most fundamental thing that you can do or should do is tap into God's heart both for you and those around you. That's what boldness actually looks like. Like when he breaks your heart for them, not in condescension, but in compassion, you let the gospel be offensive You let it be offensive. It is offensive to a perishing world. It's foolishness to them. But you don't need to add to that offense. We've got to be careful of that. And when we do, notice I said when we do, because you're not perfect, there's grace for that. And you can, in fact, apologize. That's a thing. It's humility. And so how often, here's the question, How often are we asking God to give us his unconditional love for other people? I bet if you do, it won't make you less bold. It'll make you more bold in the best way. Even an excellent way. The excellent way. That doesn't mean compromise. But it does mean compassion. You see, we live in a world that has no concept of this. We live in a society that increasingly values scoffing and mockery. Snark is the social currency of cancel culture. Like, it, and social media only intensifies it, right? Especially around election time. Hello. But like clickbait everywhere. So-and-so destroys so-and-so. This person ruins so-and-so. It's like, oh, man, I want to see that. Feed, feed my ego with that. My side's the right side? Heck, yeah, destroy them. Get them. This this person makes a fool of this person. Disdain, insults, ridicule, and demonization dominate the comment section of every post. Man, it doesn't matter if it's political or a picture of kittens. You look at the like comment section in social media in our society today, and somebody is gonna prod that scoffing beast by mocking. And so the world's answer to this is just don't be so sensitive. You know, just harden your heart and join the divisive slugfest. And the truth is, is hear me now, because I know, I know what some of you are thinking, I'm here, I, and I'm on board with it, honestly. The truth is that there are times where it's actually righteous to do so. Like in a world where wickedness is celebrated and evil is actually called good, There are indeed situations where God himself scoffs and scorns the wicked. That's a thing. There are even places in the Bible where God mocks, even laughs at his enemies, and we see things like the prophet Elijah straight mocking the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18, and he does it pretty well, actually. And we see the apostle Paul using sarcasm to drive home some pretty intense points against his enemies, Um, or against the enemies of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 10 through 13. Even Jesus, knowing what was in the hearts of man, would speak pretty sharply to those that he knew to be sons of the devil. We see these things happen. And so when these situations arise, and God does mock and laugh, in a sense, at the enemies of his people, or at his enemies, it does bring comfort and solace to God's people. Like, the fact that he laughs at his enemies is to be a place of comfort for those of us that may be oppressed by that. We see that in Scripture. So we don't want to make a hard and fast rule against this, okay? Hear me. It's important to lean into the Spirit's leading in these things. But, but... If these few places in Scripture are what you're using to justify a lifestyle of scoffing and mockery, you're likely operating more like the world than Christ. And you're in a dangerous place, and God's calling you to repent of it. Society is engorged in this kind of egotistical slugfest, but it's not to be the norm for God's people. And if it's how you find yourself interacting with his covenant family, you're definitely dancing in dangerous territory. Okay? Now, praise God, if you're new here, this is not the norm of our family here. I'm very thankful for the way that we love one another well. Amen? but I don't want it to be that way because I see this more and more in the world and it seeps even into the religious, okay? And Psalms and Proverbs speaks at length about the dangers of scoffing and mocking. Psalm 1, verse 1, right out of the gate, it kicks off the whole book of Psalms with verse 1 saying this, Blessed, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's not our seat. The Proverbs speak of a character that's actually called the mocker or the scorner or the scoffer. And it brings this character up 17 times throughout the book of Proverbs. Pastor Tim Keller wrote an insightful article about this more than a decade ago, about more than 10, 10, 12 years ago, something like that. And over the past decade, it seems that this attitude, excuse me, or this spirit has just steadily grown in society. And so the scoffer is is one that never admits that they're wrong. Proverbs 20, verse 1, even tells us that they are no more open to reason than a hopelessly drunk person. The scoffer shows no respect for any view but their own, only contempt and disdain. The scoffer is prideful and desires to have their own way in everything, needing to control and correct everyone around them. There's a veneer of confidence, but underneath, anger and insecurity characterize the inner life instead of the humility and peace that the gospel brings. So whenever someone proclaims truth, the scoffer tends to see it as an effort to grasp for power because that's what the scoffer's worldview is. So they feel the need to debunk or or tear down any proposition of truth but their own. Proverbs 9 tells us that the end of a scoffer who always has to be right is first loneliness. Like at first they tend to impress the impressionable, but as time goes on, the scoffer not only destroys relationships, but is listened to less and less and eventually is isolated. And so they often have great points. But because they don't know how to affirm and live in harmony with those who don't agree with them on every little point, their proud attitude then isolates them. This is how Proverbs describes the scoffer. But the worst result of the scorner or the scoffer is that they reap what they sow. Proverbs 3 verse 34 says this, Toward the scorners he, the Lord, is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. So King Rehoboam was a scoffer. The Corinthian church was even pursuing the gifts in this spirit of kind of like condescending disdain for those who didn't have the more flashy or supernatural gifts. But here Paul shows them a more excellent way. And, and, and can't you see the grace on display in this? Like he's, he, again, he's not like you're all, you know, missing it and I'm throwing you out. It's like, Yeah. This may be a struggle. This may be a sin issue in your life. Repentance is real, and it's good, and it's helpful, and it's available. And so what we see here is that he shows them the more excellent way. So so what does this more excellent way look like, right? Like, I, I don't have to honestly really put this on display for you because you got a front row seat to the world. You know what scoffing looks like. But what does the excellent way of love look like? That's what Paul's doing in chapter 13. Look at verse 4. First Corinthians 13, verse 4, says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Guys, this is who God is and this is the way he loves us. This is what we have in Christ. And this is the way he's called us to love one another. It doesn't mean that there's no correction. It doesn't mean that there's no rebuke. But even that is designed to bring about repentance and redemption and relationship, not canceled condemnation. So 15 attributes of God's love. That's what we see here. 15 attributes of God's love listed right here. And I do want to walk through all 15. That's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. You ready? You with me? We can do it. Here we go. Love is patient. Say patient. Patient. This means not writing people off when they don't act the way you want them to act. Even and especially when you love people and they clearly choose not to love you back, that's hard. That requires patience, amen? The temptation to that feeling of rejection is then to scoff or ridicule or repel the patience chooses not to retaliate. I praise God for how patient He is with us. And patience is crucial in exercising the gifts of the Spirit because it's important not to react critically or judgmentally when other people use a gift poorly. Poorfully, there's a word. Right? Often the gifts aren't exercised because people are afraid of being embarrassed. They don't want to step out because they're like, oh, I, I, just, I don't want to miss it. And it's really not, again, we've talked about this, it's not because they don't believe or they don't want to move. It's because they fear being criticized. That's not an excuse, right? But that is often a reason But loving patience provides safe spaces and places for the gifts to flourish within a local church, right? And so, number two, love is kind. Say kind. Kind. Notice the love of God doesn't give us any room to hold on to sin. Like, there are a lot of people who show patience, but it's kind of cold and even mean-spirited. Notice that? You can do that. But God's love is tender and affectionate, even. Like, his love isn't abrasive or harsh. But again, that doesn't mean it's not corrective and constructive. When people mess up with the gifts of the Spirit, kindness and affirmation for stepping out in faith is the best way forward instead of condemnation. So again, praise God for his kindness to us. Amen? Number three, love does not envy. So when God moves powerfully in and through someone in a particular way, it's easy for a self-centered sin nature to kind of like compare and then get envious of that person or think I'm not as good. We talked about that inferiority, superiority stuff. Like how can... And I know I've, this. I've I've experienced this one man. Like like somebody leads somebody to Christ, and I'm like, I said the same thing to that person, and then they say it, and they become Christians. Like, what's that about? Like they got saved. I, I said the same thing. It's just envy. Like you see that? It's like they came to Christ. Like you're 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 upset because you didn't do it. Like what is what is that? It's envy right? God's the one that gets the glory. His kingdom's expanding. So envy takes our focus off the main thing and puts it on the vain thing, right? But genuine love rejoices in the success even of others. This is only possible if you're secure in the love of God. Verse, verse 4, number 4, love does not boast. So this is the flip side of envy. In, instead of wanting what somebody else has, then, then people brag about what you have and others don't. Like sometimes it's just an unintentional lack of awareness, right? Sometimes you just like don't realize you're doing it, but love calls us to consider others, which means becoming more aware of how we're affecting others. Sometimes there's nothing you can do, but more often than not, there is. And so we desire God to open our eyes and see those things, and the love of God helps us grow in that awareness, and we need to move forward in that, and yet not allow the lack of awareness or the lack of what we've done to shame us. So we get off of that, and again, it demands security in Christ alone. You see this? And so, number five, love is not arrogant. Arrogance assumes that a gift wasn't given but somehow earned. So 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul said this earlier in the letter. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, gifts aren't given because of merit, but simply grace. Like everything you've got was given to you. Arrogance assumes you did something to deserve it. Making some more elite than others, which is the Corinthian issue, right? Right? But that's not the way of the kingdom because that's not the way of love. And yet, the loving response to those who do that also isn't shame or rudeness because love is not rude, which is number six. And i got to speed it up, don't I? So number six, love is not rude. Often when people see others who are arrogant, the flesh wants to tear them down a few notches, right, using shame. When you see somebody arrogant, what do you want to do? Nobody else there. You can call them out. When somebody's prideful, what do you want to do? You want to shame them. Or at least your flesh does. Right? But that's not the answer. All that does is perpetuate that pride-shame spectrum. All that does is just send people in reaction one to another and just back and forth and back and forth as the enemy just torments society. When someone is convinced that God wants them to act, maybe, and instead of taking the time to consult or, or counsel With wisdom, they they act in a completely inconsiderate way because they're only thinking of themselves rather than how that action will be received. And again, the flip side of that is they get paralyzed and they don't do anything because they're afraid they're not going to do it perfectly. Pride shame. You see it? Grace says, go, trust me, and do it in a loving way. You're secure. I love you. I'm with you. I'll speak through you trust me. And if you miss the mark, there's grace. This is the power of it. But do it in a considerate way, not an inconsiderate way, because rudeness is inconsiderate. But genuine love is not rude. And number seven, love does not insist on its own way. The scoffer attitude has a really hard time with this one, man. Because genuine love prefers others and considers others before self. God's love asks, how can my gift be used to promote others and encourage others and edify and build up others rather than just myself? And so Jesus demonstrates this perfectly, right? Even though he was God, he didn't consider godliness as something to be grasped, but humbled himself into service as a servant. Man, that's powerful. The God of universe Number eight, love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. Some translations say easily angered. I think you might also be able to put here easily triggered. Like you're looking for a reason, looking for a reason to take offense and just unload all of your trauma and issues on everyone else around you to play the victim, and to react defensively to every little thing, just ready to explode. That's not what the true love of God produces in us, and that's not who God is. Like, praise God that he's not irritable and easily triggered. Amen? He's not. He's patient. Like some of you may have a picture of God in your mind that is an easily triggered, irritable figure in the sky because of maybe the way your parents were or spouse. Guys, I, I would encourage you to repent of that image of God and to look to who he truly is in his scriptures, okay? Number nine, love is not resentful. Some translations say here, love keeps no record of wrongs. woo That'll preach by itself. You guys got another hour or two? That's so good. Guys, the truth is that in this life, people will wrong you. You will experience very real injustice in this world. Resentment keeps a record like tally marks on our hearts, every slight, every injustice we experience, ready to use it as ammunition to prove just how victimized you truly are and what you deserve, and then rub the offender's face in it as soon as you get the opportunity. And if they're not around, then we can just rub God's face in it. It's Bitterness. The bitter and resentful heart keeps a record of wrongs. I praise God Praise God that He not only forgives us for our resentful hearts, but He gives us new ones and they don't have any tally marks on them. Look, we can offer the same forgiveness we've experienced in Him to the world. Praise God that He's not keeping a record of your wrongs. He's not resentful towards you. You may be quick to let him take away the record of your wrongs done against him and others through the cross, but will you let him take away your record of wrongs done against you? Will you let him take away the offenses that you are keeping? Like, we're quick to be like, okay, yeah, God forgives me, but I don't know about that one. Let him wipe the slate clean. Now, that doesn't mean injustice doesn't matter. Not at all. In fact, 10, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Like resentment, bitterness, and insecurity will cause you to actually rejoice when others fail. Like when somebody screws up or misuses the gifts, there's this thing in some people, especially if you've been hurt or wronged, and it makes you kind of enjoy it because it makes them somehow feel better about themselves. Like you feel better than them because you take pleasure in seeing or hearing about their failures and brokenness because it makes you feel not so broken. This is the heart behind gossip, guys. The brokenness of others becomes then a source of entertainment. There's even there's a billion-dollar industry that preys on the brokenness of others through gossip magazines and these trashy TV shows. And it's dangerous. Like, whether that stuff is scripted or actually real... Like, it's dangerous to allow your heart to indulge in the misery and shame of other people for the sake of entertainment. Because, at the very least, on a subconscious level, all you're doing is justifying your own self righteousness by rejoicing at wrongdoing. And that then will breed a craving for gossip. But the love of God gives us eyes to see the brokenness and cry out on their behalf in prayer. Like, let it break your heart. Let it break your heart when these things happen. That actually is what will fuel boldness to love them well and speak truth. And then we see the consequence of wickedness, and we are called to abhor what is evil. Abhor is a strong word. I'd say it even goes beyond hate. Love does not rejoice in other sins in the name of kindness either. If someone you love is indulging in something that's killing them, no matter how much they ask you to affirm their destructive patterns, they aren't asking you to love them. They're asking you to give them over to their own destruction. That's not love. And praise God that he doesn't do that with us. That's why when you sense conviction... Because he loves you. 11. Rather, love rejoices with the truth. God's love in and through his people manifests by looking for reasons to encourage and affirm, not tear down. To build up, not scorn, mock, or scoff. Love looks for a reason to amplify that which is righteous, good, and true. Whatever's honorable, whatever's just and pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And yes, that is Philippians 4, verse 8. That's just scripture. That doesn't mean we ignore unrighteousness. Far from it, right? Like, in fact, by rejoicing with the truth, we expose the counterfeit with the genuine article. 12. Love bears all things. Again, that doesn't mean we ignore sin. It does mean that we're not a constant people on like a constant witch hunt, ready to cancel those who miss the mark. That's the way the world operates. It's interesting how those who operate like that tend to only go after the sins that bother them, by the way. Like accountability isn't about policing other people's morality in order to protect ourselves from them. It's about loving people and pointing them to Jesus even in the midst of difficulty. And often that means bearing with them and enduring through often difficult and frustrating seasons because you love them and you've tapped into the way God loves them. Like praise God for how he bears with us. Verse 13. Love believes all things. Now this isn't a call to gullibility. That's not what it's saying, okay? but it is a caution against cynical and suspicious attitudes. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt until all the facts are known. That's really important. That doesn't mean that you throw all discernment out the window, but, but it does mean we don't jump to conclusions and judgments that are probably more influenced by the previous pain that you've experienced than the present realities that are taking place. Do you see that? It's an attempt to protect yourself from pain because of something you've experienced. And so you jump to a conclusion that they're doing exactly what you experienced when you were, whatever happened. It's the result of a, of a, of a world that has gone wrong. But God's love brings a redemption to that. And yet, trust often requires vulnerability, which is why the love of God in Christ is so crucial. Like, the only way any of this, again, is possible at all is by resting in the secure, unconditional, everlasting, never-ending love and kindness of God in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're going to look for it in every relationship and in every circumstance, and if you don't get it, you're going to react in bitterness and retribution. And then you assume the worst and create pain, offense, and division where there was only misunderstanding. Fourteen. Love always hopes. And this is difficult. Again, this is difficult. Love always hopes. I'm not naive to the people I'm speaking to here. Many of you have been through some extreme things, some real injustices. And I I am sorry. I'm not belittling it. If you've been tricked, if you've been hurt, if you've been deceived, if you've been abandoned, if you've been a victim of real injustice, this is hard. And yet it's necessary. Like that saying, hurt people hurt people, that's real. But there's another saying, healed people heal people. Jesus has brought you healing. Ultimately, nobody's been more hurt, more betrayed, more abandoned than Jesus. And yet, his love is unconditional. How? 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 It's easy to simply say, you know, well, God's love is unconditional because he's God. Jesus is God. That's why he's able to do that. But it's deeper than that. Like, that's true, but there's a deeper principle at work that's even available to you. He's drawing us into it. See, Jesus loves unconditionally because he is unconditionally loved by the Father. And guess what? He offers that to us. Because of Jesus, we have access to the same unconditional love, which provides that security to put ourselves out there in hope. Whether you're, that love or that thing will be reciprocated to you or not by this world, we have it in Christ. This is our hope. Hebrews six nineteen says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking about the curtain that separates God's people from the holy of holies. We are able to enter in. That thing has been split because of what Christ has done for us. So love always hopes and only concedes the worst when all the evidence is blatantly clear. Guys, listen to me. I've learned this over the years. If I'm in error, I'd rather be defrauded and slandered than divisive and destructive. Finally, number 15, and we'll wrap it up here. Love always endures or, or perseveres. Like all of these traits culminate and conclude here with loving perseverance. Because if you know the love of God, then you love him back. And if you love him, Romans eight twenty eight promises that all things work for the good of those who love him and are called to his purposes. That means that none of it that you face, none of it's meaningless. Like whatever we face, no matter how difficult or painful, it's doing something in and through us that's totally worth it like whether you can see it in the moment or not like that the beloved of god persevere in love they're bold and courageous and steadfast they are the ones who take heart in the dark and courage in the face of difficulty it's it's not the strong and arrogant it's those who are secure in their identity as god's beloved they are the ones that persevere. A like case in point is the apostle John, the only disciple who didn't flee the cross when Jesus was crucified. He's right there. Why? He's also the one who claimed to be the disciple whom John, I'm sorry, Jesus loved. That's what caused it's not necessarily that Jesus actually loved him more than the others, but John was the one who most readily received it. And that translated into Boldness and perseverance. He took hold of Christ's love, and that changes everything. My question for you this morning is Will you take hold of his love for you? When you do, it changes everything. Not just what we do, but the way we do it, because love matters. Let's pray.